All right, open your Bibles tonight to the tiny little book of Philemon. Reminder, if you don't know where that is, it goes Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, towards the end of the New Testament. We're going to spend a second week again in Paul's little postcard to Philemon, written to him, to his wife, to his co-worker, and the church that meets in his house. So before we get to the text itself, here's the question of the night. What do you see? What do you see? So the issues of vision and imagination are crucial to the decisions that we make and how we choose to live. What do you see? So again, here's, uh, here's some artwork. Maybe you've seen these before in classes or uh, various presentations. What do you see? A duck and a rabbit. Right? So, like, there's this whole genre of art that just depends on what you see. There's, there's different things, a little illusion going on here. All right, next one. What do you see? You see singers? One playing a guitar? What else do you see? An old man and old woman? About ready to pucker up and kiss, maybe? Facing each other? Okay. These are the old, old ones. There's a new set that I came across recently from a Ukrainian artist. Um, I'm going to go ahead and put these up too. What do you see? All right, on the left here, it's, there's Vincent Van Gogh, or you could see uh, a guy sitting in a field with houses in the background. Anyone here? What do you see on the right? Okay, there's a lady reading with a creepy guy in the hood looking over her shoulder. It's also... I think a profiling of, of Charles Darwin. You see that? His bald forehead right there. Okay, next set. On the left, a woman reading, or I think it's supposed to be Salvador Dali. Here is John Lennon. Or, yeah, a variety of other figures as well. So, you can go ahead and take those away. Those are going to be distracting if I leave them up. <laughs> There's a reason why I start here, though, not just to have a cute, clever introduction to keep your attention. But there's something about what you see. And there's something about the imagination that you bring to what you see. Not just with art or sketches or portraits, but also with people. What do you see when you see people? What do you see when you see the circumstances of your life? What do you see when you take a look around? As Christians, I'll say probably even to clarify that, as American Christians living in our current age, some of us suffer from a shriveled, impoverished imagination. Francis Schaeffer once wrote, that the Christian is the one whose imagination should fly beyond the stars. But unfortunately, another scholar, Kevin Van Hooser, says that many churches are suffering from malnourished imaginations, captive to culturally conditioned pictures of the good life. 
And then he goes on, here's his lengthy quote, if the church is to fulfill her remit as a holy nation and live out her citizenship of the gospel, she must pit her evangelical imagination against every counterfeit. To see the world in oneself with evangelical imagination is to live not in fantasy land, but in the only real world there is, the world created by God's word, the world into which God's word has entered and will return. Since the ten plagues of Egypt played this role in the minds of the ancient Israelites, they freed the imagination of the Israelites from thinking that the power of Egypt was sovereign. They deconstructed Pharaoh's claim to power. It takes imagination to see that what God is doing with a small tribe of slaves is greater than the might of Egypt. That's supposed to be the might of Egypt. And that what God is doing in the early church is greater than the grandeur that is Rome. What kind of imagination do you have? What do you see? Which is precisely what I want to highlight tonight. I think it takes great, spirit-led, biblically-informed imagination to see what is possible for the people of God, to see what God is doing, to see what God could be doing. And yet often our imagination is stuck in a rut, in an ever-shrinking way instead of like what Schaefer says flying beyond the stars and so maybe we need some help again from the scriptures the renewal of our mind the renewal of our vision a recapturing of a kingdom imagination what do you see so Philemon Back to Philemon then, the Apostle Paul's little letter to Philemon. Those of you who were with us last week know that uh, Philemon is one of the, it is the shortest letter of Paul in the New Testament, 25 verses, 355 words, and at its core, at the core of the letter is Paul's appeal of love to Philemon for him to receive back Onesimus. And Onesimus is a slave, a slave that has escaped Philemon's household for freedom. Somehow Onesimus went free. He came into contact with the Apostle Paul in his imprisonment and came to faith in Jesus. So then now Paul writes this letter and sends it back to Philemon, back to his household. And Paul, the prisoner for Christ Jesus, sends it to Philemon, to Aphia, to Archippus, his co-worker, and the church that meets in their house. And he sends back the letter, and he sends back Onesimus, and without commanding him explicitly, he appeals for him to receive this escaped slave back as a brother. So this is the awkward letter that no one reads and skips over in their Bibles. And as I confessed last week, I've never preached this book before. I've never even heard any sermons on this book before. So last week we tried to slow down and kind of get a vision of what was happening. What would this be like for Onesimus? What would this be like for Philemon? What would this be like for the church to hear this letter and to see the awkward embodied tension between Philemon and Onesimus? Tonight, though, what I want to focus in on, I want to pay attention to, to Paul's kingdom imagination as he writes this letter. Because what Paul sees 
is different than maybe what I would see. And what many would see as a really awkward train wreck of a relational break, Paul sees with promise and opportunity, and he sees a masterpiece about ready to be painted. He doesn't look at things with earthly eyes. He sees the situation with kingdom eyes, with kingdom imagination. And that's the reason why he can approach what seems to be a broken mess and call for reconciliation. Because the way of the kingdom, the way of Jesus, is different than the way of the world. But it takes a, it takes a different eye and a different imagination to see it. I would say that Paul's kingdom imagination flies beyond the stars because he sees as God sees. So here's here's the passage tonight. Philippians, I won't say chapter 1 because there is only one chapter, but Philemon, verse 8 through 16. Here's the next kind of chunk of the letter that we're going to look at tonight. Verse 8. After the introductions, and he blessed Philemon, spoke highly of Philemon, honored Philemon, verse 8. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul, I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So as Paul crafts this letter, it really is interesting to me the tact that he takes as he approaches Philemon and he makes his appeal, right? Verse 8, he's like, I'm bold enough to command you. I could say, I, the apostle Paul, am telling you in the, by, by the authority vested in me, do the right thing here. But he says, I'm not going to do that. And this is in some ways, like I said last week, kind of a parent move. I could tell you what to do. But I don't want to have to tell you what to do, and I know you're going to do what is right. I would rather appeal to you for love's sake. Because I know you're going to do what is right. Not just because I told you to, but because you want to do this. He's kind, he is clear, and he refrains from a power play. He also uses some interesting words to identify himself. Again, I mentioned he identifies as a prisoner for Christ Jesus, not an apostle, as he begins the letter. Also, he calls himself an old man. I'm just, just an old man here. And then he also, um, in some ways, uses rhetoric, and he identifies himself, again, as a prisoner in some ways, identifying in some solidarity with Onesimus. And he selects this term that would have him identify with the one who has been marginalized. 
And then he really goes into this. And I really, again, I love the shift that he makes. There's, there's three of them that he does in this little passage that we just read. I just want to highlight them for you because I think the shift that Paul is calling for is helpful for us. The shift that he makes and calls for applies to us. Here's the first one. Here's the kingdom shift, verse 10 and 11. The kingdom shift of imagination from useless to useful. From useless to useful. What the world deems useless, Paul deems useful. What we see as useless, God can see as useful. And and this whole shift of uselessness and usefulness, it's a word play that Paul uses here. If you check your footnotes and you have a Bible that does that, anyone know what the word Onesimus means? Yeah. His name is useful. That's what Onesimus means. It's useful. Uh, That's the meaning of his name. And, And scholars point out that it was very common in that region for slave owners to have the power and the authority to name their slave whatever they wanted to name them. So they, they named him, he, Philemon named him. Again, we don't know fully how he came into his household. Many assume that he was born into it. But he has this name. Onesimus' name is useful, which I think in that era would be a good slave name. Most slave masters want their slaves to be useful. But with all that has transpired here, with Onesimus having left, some, again, this reading between the lines, he may have taken something, some money or some possession and, and, and run away. We'll talk about that next week a bit. But he's left. And from Philemon's point of view then, Onesimus was anything but useful. In fact, that's the word that then Paul says here, verse 11. Formerly he was useless to you because he left you. He may have wronged you. He may have hurt you. He's not in your presence anymore. Formerly he was useless and he ran for his freedom. And again, there's still so much to the story that we do not know. We don't know about the timing. We don't know about his motivations. We don't know about the details of his escape. But I think it's fair to say that when when Philemon discovered that Onesimus was gone, there's a dark cloud over this relationship. There's a dark cloud over this particular person. There's a dark cloud over all that has gone on between these two one man's, in this era, literal property leaves. But this is where the gospel is different. And this is where kingdom imagination comes into play to a story and a situation that seems permanently marked by chaos and conflict and uselessness. God is able to redeem. Shouldn't we who have read our Bibles be aware of how God works? Shouldn't we who have heard the story of God understand that God has this tendency to turn useless things useful? Might I remind you, if you replay from Genesis, I'm reminded of a God who turns barren wombs 
into a bountiful family tree? Ask Sarah, ask Rebecca, ask Rachel, ask Anna, ask Elizabeth. I'm reminded of a God who turns famine into provision for a nation, who takes runt younger brothers and turns them into warriors, who takes random five smooth stones and kills giants. I'm reminded of a God who turns prostitutes into protectors of spies, who takes sack lunches and turns them into a feast with leftovers. I'm reminded of a God who turns tax collectors into apostles and demon-possessed women into worshipers, lepers into lovers, lame beggars into leapers, and graves into gardens. Don't you know we serve a God who turns the useless useful? Aren't we glad we serve a God? I am in my life that he has taken my sin in its uselessness, and he has transformed me into a child of the king. This is the way the kingdom works. Nothing is useless in the economy of God. There's a pastor, Alistair Begg. He says, Christianity knows nothing of useless cases. Don't you know how that works? And I just, again, I love Paul's kingdom vision. I love his kingdom imagination. He says, this person was useless to you, but now God has made him useful. And this is one of the reasons why he has a vision for reconciliation. Because God takes what is deemed useless and he can make it useful in his hands. And I just wonder, because I know I'm guilty of this, what are the people, what are the places, what are the circumstances, what are the conflicts that we have deemed useless and we've discarded them and said it's too far gone, too much of a waste, never going to happen, can't turn around, can't change, waste of time, right? When God says, do you see what I see? Do you believe that I have the power to change, transform? And the gospel allows us to live up to our names when God has bigger things in store. Do we have God's kingdom imagination for the useless? Again, what people, what problems, what places might God be at work? Has the enemy called you useless in your sin? Or maybe it's the voice of a family member or a friend. Maybe it's your own voice that reminds you in shame. Have you taken on the label that the enemy would love to place on you as useless? The hope of the gospel is that he causes change. And I know I need to ask him, God, what have I deemed useless that you are saying it's useful? The whole world of possibilities hinges on that question. Next shift. The shift from bondservant to brother. 
So we talked about this last week in setting up and explaining the letter. Onesimus is a bond servant. He is a slave in the household of Philemon. Um, and again, that's really the circumstance that defines the letter. Philemon's a slave owner. And as much as we would love to kind of like write that out of the Bible, it's there. He's a slave owner. And Onesimus is the slave, and he escapes. And the way slavery worked in the ancient Roman world is different than it did in our own country. It was not explicitly a racial thing. In ancient Rome, a person could become a slave a variety of ways. You could be born into it. You could be acquired by victory of war. So one country or area would conquer another, and they would take those prisoners and make them slaves. Or you could also be purchased for economic reasons. And you could sell yourself into slavery for a price for your debts. And again, we don't know, there's a lot we don't know here. We don't know the specifics. What, what caused Onesimus to become a slave in Philemon's household? What kind of slave was he? What kind of slave master was Philemon? We don't know a lot of these things. But in the ancient world, Rome had a massive slave society. Some estimate the slave population made up 35% of all people. That's a lot of people. And with that then came certain social hierarchical implications. Here's how one scholar, Sandra Joshua, maps it out. And she's highlighting here after 27 BCE. you got the emperor at the top. Nobles, senators, equestrians, municipal magistrates and senators, freeborn Roman citizens, freed slave citizens, and slaves. And the Roman Empire had this obsession, this compulsion to classify everyone. Are you slave or are you free? It was a big deal in their society. Slave or free made all the difference in the world. And so for Onesimus, as a slave, he knew his place. He was reminded that he needed to keep his place. He was expected to offer loyal obedience to his master, whether good or bad. And as one commentator pointed out, who one was and what one did were shaped by where one was located on the social ladder. And so in every sense of the word, and in every sense of the, the Roman social hierarchy, Philemon and Onesimus occupied vastly different worlds. And I realize, and want to name again for us even tonight, to read a story in sacred scripture about a, a Christian owning another human being kicks up all sorts of sensibilities, questions, issues, problems, all sorts of slave-owning, Jesus-following dissonance that was true then and has been true in the American experiment. And so in 2022, I would say most people read the Bible and we want Paul in his letter to denounce slavery, set the slaves free. We wish Philemon was an ancient emancipation proclamation for all time, all slaves in the name of Jesus. And being honest, Paul does not do that. Like You have to be honest with that. That's not what he does here. And that does trouble some as they read the Bible. But again, I would argue and say 
thinking kingdom imagination here. While Paul does not take the time in this letter to condemn slavery, I do believe that what he is doing here is extremely revolutionary. I've heard some describe this as Paul putting a timed explosive underneath the foundation of slavery, which would doom its future. Look at verse 14. 15, 16. So Onesimus belonged to Philemon. Onesimus escapes. Onesimus comes to Paul in prison. Onesimus comes to faith in Jesus. And now Paul says, okay, Onesimus, I'm sending you back to Philemon and his household. Here's the request, verse 14. Paul writes, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And what Paul does here, and you see it play out in real time, I actually find it remarkable that Paul would have the capacity to envision this request in this day and age. His categories here are so countercultural. He has the ability in the Roman Empire with the Roman social hierarchy to say, here's the vision of what I would love for you to do. I I'm sending an escaped slave back to your house that he would not be a bondservant to you, but I want you to receive him back as a beloved brother. That is really revolutionary. It, it upends conventional wisdom and the social structure, structure of the day. No longer a bondservant. This is the shift. I want you to see him. And when you see him, I want you to receive him. And I want you to love him as a beloved brother. Who could see it that way? Would I have had eyes to see it that way? I believe it's a groundbreaking vision of the kingdom of God where slave owners and escaped slaves would function as family. Beloved brothers, dearly loved brothers and sisters, that term reserved for the family of God. It does remind me of Martin Luther King Jr.'s concept of the beloved community appropriate as we honor him tomorrow in the holiday. The idea of a vision of a beloved community. This is what, this is what the power of the cross can do to rearrange, to redefine, and to restore. Some quotes. Scott McKnight commentator says the language elevates a slave from the margins of a family to the family table next one mary ann getty says a common baptism changes the basis for relationships among persons christians define themselves and their relationships on new familial and ministerial grounds distinct from those recognized in an alien society Former class distinctions are transformed. Former debts are abolished. Forgiveness is not a purely personal option. Retaliation is precluded. A new form of justice is required. 
And then David Dobbs says, the man baptized by Paul is no longer the man that was owned by Philemon. That's how radical of a shift and a change has been made. Now, again, like, what does this mean for us that lives in a country without slavery? At least not legal slavery. But I still think it makes us ask the question, socially, hierarchically, do we have a vision for a beloved community, beloved brothers and sisters? That no matter what society would say, no matter what class you may be in, no matter where on the ladder you may rank, that there is something fundamental that happens through faith in the finished work of Jesus. There is something that happens when sin is confessed and repentance happens and a person is baptized into a community. Something fundamental happens there where we are beloved brothers and sisters. As Americans, we tend to view church relationships as commodities. There's something fundamentally different that's happening here. A view of the other as a beloved brother, a beloved sister. That even what has happened in your past is changed and you are welcomed in. Kingdom possibilities hinge on that shift. What if we looked at people through the eyes of God and don't define them by the past, to see them through the work of Christ in the eyes of God? One more shift, and I'll be done. So the shift from uselessness to usefulness, the shift from bondservant to brother, beloved brothers and sisters, the shift from a while to forever. Look at verse 15. I already read this before. I'm going to circle back to it now. As Paul is talking about the change that happened in Onesimus during his absence, he uses this language, verse 15. He says, For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. Here are the two phrases, a while and forever. Perhaps. Paul's like, I don't don't know fully. I'm not God. I don't know everything here. But just, just think, perhaps. Perhaps this is what was going on here in your a while. And with that, Paul highlights another part of kingdom imagination that has to do with time how we view time and the purposes of God. And I'm positive, I'm I'm mainly positive, that when Philemon discovered Onesimus had gone, however that went down, my guess is he wasn't happy. Or else he wouldn't have written, like this whole letter wouldn't have gone down this way. My guess. And no matter how good of a man he was or how much character, which Paul seems to affirm here, he wasn't thrilled for Onesimus to leave. There was conflict here. That's why Paul senses the need to repair it. But my guess is it wasn't a happy day. And we don't know how long. Was it days? Was it weeks? Was it months? Was it years? 
but it must have felt like a while. Isn't our concept of time interesting? And now in COVID, it feels like it's just been like, whoa, whoa, messed up. Was, it, was that a month ago? Was that, was that early COVID quarantine? Was that five years ago, three years ago, one year? I don't know. But, but generally speaking, as human beings, we like things fast, we like things immediate, and we like things without any weight. We want it perfect, and we want it now. And the while drags on. There's a while of loss. There's a while of waiting. I know most of your stories. Some of you have been waiting for years. Some of you decades. And the a while of life makes us jumpy and frustrated and impatient and prone to take matters into our own hands. But I love what Paul does here. It's a pastoral kind of move here. He points this out. He's like, perhaps, perhaps this is what's happening in your a while. Perhaps he parted from you for a while because there's a greater work that God was doing in him that you would have him back forever. Not as a servant, but as a brother. And Paul makes this move where he asks Philemon to examine the situation in light of forever. He asks Philemon to examine what has just gone down in light of eternity. In light of the grander scheme and scope of a sovereign God. And that's the timeline that a kingdom imagination lives in. It's a kingdom imagination that isn't just stuck in the here and now. Yes, it deals with the here and now, but there is a perspective of eternity. And eternity changes are a while. It's the difference between the temporary and the eternal. It's the difference of getting antsy in the seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years. And for whatever reason, God's grace, the Apostle Paul seemed to get a, hand, a handle of this, a handle on this. It's the same imagination that Paul uses that allows him to talk about his light and momentary afflictions. You ever read that before? 2 Corinthians 4, 17, different letter, different circumstances. But he says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. The things that are unseen are eternal. What's, what's Paul's list of light momentary afflictions? <laughs> Shipwrecked beaten, imprisoned, days, you know, he has that list. And he's like, yeah, those, you know, the light momentary afflictions, the ones that I gripe and complain about, the ones that are just like, oh, how long, God? Paul says to Philemon, perhaps, perhaps this is what was happening. That yeah, you parted from him for a little while. But do you see what's happened here? Now you have the opportunity to welcome back as a brother forever. Are we willing to concede? Perhaps. And I'm sensitive talking to people in their suffering. 
Because when you suffer, you don't want people to talk about the perhaps. We do this sensitively and carefully. But we have to offer the truth of the perhaps. The perhaps God is doing something in the midst of our pain, our losses, our disappointments. Perhaps God is doing something in our little while of our conflicts. Perhaps God is at work in our unresolved issues that will bear kingdom possibilities, new fruit, new relationships, new outcomes, new possibilities in light of what the redemptive plan of God is. Things could change in a while. and Maybe we need a good gospel, perhaps, spoken to our life right now. Who knows? Who knows what God is up to? Perhaps God is working things out that you don't see or know or understand or have vision for. And like the case of Onesimus, might there be a bigger, more beautiful work being done outside our current field of sight? That's my hope. Paul says, you may have lost a bondservant, but look what God did. He's given you a brother forever. You will worship with him around the throne in the new heavens and the new earth. And that little while when he was gone and maybe he wronged you and hurt you, made it awkward for you, it will fade in light of the eternal work of God. So I ask, what do you see? What do you see? Where does your imagination go? As individuals, as a church, do we need the Spirit to shift us? Where are we stuck in uselessness? Where is God saying, no, 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 don't, don't call that useless. It's useful in my hand. Where is there a shift needed from, from the bondservant to brotherhood? The shift from a while to forever. regarding people's identities, regarding family, regarding time itself. God is inviting us to an ever-expanded kingdom imagination beyond the stars because he's that big. His work of reconciliation on the cross did the impossible of bridging a holy God and sinful humanity What person, place, problem, crisis, conflict needs some kingdom imagination today? As we continue in this book, I remind you the God of Philemon and Onesimus is still on the move. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King Jesus, you've taken so much that has been deemed useless and you've made it useful through your life, death, and resurrection. Through the giving of your spirit. Through the eternal plan of the Father. So God, we need help. We need help. It's really easy to stay stuck in the ruts of our hurts and wounds and pain and problems and crisis. 
that are real and legitimate, but it seems like you may be calling us to something greater and more. So we ask, Lord, in faith that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, obedience to say to you, yes, Lord, whatever it may be. And we continue to ask that you would transform and change these circumstances, situations that maybe are in our own mind's eye. Lord, may you bring your healing work of change. May you bring a turning from sin. May you bring repentance. May you bring reconciliation. May you bring, Lord, all the things that may be needed in this hour. Jesus, we look to you. May you meet us even tonight, we pray, in fresh ways, beautiful ways. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.